Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm on a journey into Australia's recent past. The book is Distant Echoes and the author is Klaus Kalmer. So Klaus, welcome to 3CR. And a very good morning to you and now, your listeners, David. Thank you very much. Did I get the pronunciation class? Is that You're one of the few people that ever has. <laughs> but <laughs> it is right. It's class, not Klaus or... Yes, no, yeah. big double A. Now, this novel is fiction, but it's based on your actual experience in life. Uh, yes, you could say that. Uh, early on in life, I came to Australia under... Uh, not difficult circumstances, but I came out with a stepfather and a mother and we arrived here and that was just after the Second World War. So we came here trying to get away from the war like many people were at that time from the various countries in Europe to make a new start and get a new life. Well, that was part of Australia's history, this migration that occurred, uh, populate or perish sort of attitude. And um, we managed to get people that were... um, how would we put it politely these days? Ethnically appropriate? You were from Holland. Yes, indeed I was. Now, uh, the community I became involved with uh, in Coburg, for instance, that was, even in those days, very diverse mm. and uh, certainly was changing the landscape even during the 50s. And I've tried to talk about it. In my book. Well, this is what's interesting to me in terms of that landscape that existed back then. But just before we get there, the conditions you faced, you worked on a dairy farm as a 13-year-old. Yes, I did. I I came uh, from a place in Holland called The Hague, Mm. which is a large city. And I found myself after two days in Australia on a dairy farm in the country and I was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, without pay, just board and lodgings. How did that come about? Uh, well, I wasn't very popular with my stepfather, and I think they just wanted to get rid of me. So they succeeded, and it was all prearranged, and uh, I didn't know anything about this. In fact, uh, I was picked up uh, one evening, the second night I was in Australia, and taken to this farm, and that was that. Well, it's it's interesting because, um, well, would such things be able to occur today? One thing I was wondering is what the conditions were like and if that was a common practice, but it, you were telling me off air that it wasn't. No, it's not a common practice. <laughs> Thankfully, it's not a common practice. Yeah, I was wondering how lots of those migrants would have survived in you know arriving in Australia and what would they be doing sort of thing. Well, you know, they talk about uh, work in those days, in the 50s, was extremely easy to get. You could get a job any day of the week and you didn't have to really go knocking on doors. you just walk in and get a job. So it's quite, it was quite easy. Mm, yeah. What is then interesting is some of the, uh, the backdrop to all of this, uh, some of which um, I sort of hesitate to claim that I can remember, uh, the social and urban customs of the time. I mean, there's lovely little lines. The front door is only for weddings and funerals. <laughs> the, the way people behaved back then and, and these sorts of customs. Um, 
another one, a corned beef with white sauce, cauliflower, carrots and boiled potato. I can actually remember being yes. served that. Um, people had very narrow views on how to behave. Well, I guess it varied a bit between cultures. I mean, certainly the Italians and the Greeks that were also coming in at fast numbers, they bought the kind of food that we eat today mm. and we go to their restaurants and so on. So they changed that uh, picture quite a bit. But uh, the Brits and the Australians, basically your three veg and a lamb chop, and that was the normal sort yeah. of diet that we became used to. Um, well, that's what my mum cooked. I can remember when I left home, I was presented with a copy of the PWMU cookbook, <laughs> Presbyterian Women's Mission Union, and it basically taught you how to boil water. But the meals were very plain and ordinary. Um, and so there's, there's some of that. But it, it reflects on the nature of the society you've got at the beginning of this novel, where your main character, Job, uh, who is sort of based on your experience, has to survive. One of the things he does is rent a room with Mrs Donnelly. What brought that about? Uh, yes, that's true, and uh, that was very good because he was living under a bridge at this stage, so he wasn't doing too well. His family had uh, deserted him once more and gone back to the Netherlands under uh, some pretty... Uh, difficult circumstances and so he found himself on his own again he was lucky enough to get boarding with this lovely Australian lady and uh, her family but there is a need for her to rent out a room yes and the reason for that was uh, a lot of households in that area at that time were having well difficult circumstances there were lots of families that struggled in a sense that uh, this was a six o'clock swill closing and uh, uh, people used to, uh, a lot of my friends at that time came from broken families where there was uh, kind of a lot of violence within the family, alcoholism. Uh, in Mrs Donnelly's case, there was a kind of, uh, that kind of problem. Well, it brings up this whole notion of the roles of women in society that existed back then that, you know, a lot of young people wouldn't really understand or appreciate today. And for a woman to have money of her own, this was would have been one of the ways to do it. Yes, yes. I think uh, in lots of cases, women didn't work uh, once they started a family. They stayed home and they felt they had to be there to look after their kids and their husband. But if the husband, as it was the case here, uh, failed to uh, hold his job or became an alcoholic, of course, it put an enormous stress mm. on the families. And then you've got the other backdrop of it being a very Catholic family as well. And so the dominance then of the social attitudes that existed because of that. Yes, if you look, if you take it as a barometer or or, or a time in the history of Australia during the 50s. I mean, that was really uh, seriously seriously considered. I mean, Catholicism or other uh, religions were hmm. taken very seriously and you turned up for Mass on Sundays, whether you liked it or not. It was just understood that that 
what's happened. Yes, well, you didn't want to go to hell. No, and, that's and that right. That was the only way to avoid it. That's right. So you you have all of these uh, this, this sort of backdrop that that's there that, that that comes through. The story sort of jumps after that because we go we change focus in many ways from Job, who's the character. Yep. Uh, to Detective Langley, and we get this then sort of uh, disappearance of uh, some girls, um, and it becomes a sort of uh, detective mystery in many ways, which we don't want to give away unnecessarily. No, I... uh Look, I wanted to write a proper novel. I didn't want to write a memoir. I didn't like the idea about writing about myself, and I wanted to prove that I could be a writer and come up with a good plot and so on, and uh, I wanted to make people real. A lot of the people in the book were actually uh, uh, not fiction. I knew them, uh, including some of the police, And but I've tried to make that psychologically believable and I've tried to build tension between the different groups and people that you would have in normal life. And then, so we have these girls that have disappeared, and then the focus is it that, um, well, the girls uh, in this day and in in the time in which the novel was set had boyfriends, which was frowned upon. Uh, Was it the teacher? Uh, So there's suspicion raised there. Was it one of the members of uh, that biker gang? So we've got a range of suspects there that we, uh, well, Detective Langley has to uh, sort through uh, to find uh, who, in fact, uh, is the perpetrator, but we don't want to to give that away. You've also got a a range of other issues there. Um, Job actually manages to, um, or is assisted by an Aboriginal couple who run a milk bar. Yes, and uh, that was... Considering we said at the white Australian policy at that particular moment in the 50s, here's an Aboriginal man that took it on himself to look after the street kids. Mm. Uh, Not just me, but he would provide a a haven and become a mentor in many cases. In my case, it was exceptional because he actually uh, took Job on and he uh, provided him with contacts and networks and employment. So it was quite an unusual thing to happen in those days. Mm. So you've actually touched on uh, quite a range of of, uh, topical issues there. But the other thing then is this is a self-published book. What led you to that and what was the process you went through? Well, I often get asked this question and it's, you know, the pros and cons of being published or publishing yourself. I had always... I'm not very good at continuing to try and be approached and perhaps not getting answers to my applications and things. And I decided if I published myself, I'd have my own destiny. And I've always been like that. You know, you create your own luck, you create your own destiny. Uh, And I'm here for that reason in some ways because I'm trying to promote my book because I don't have a publisher. So I'll I'll do the best I can. And where can they get a copy of this book from? You have something available for the yes. listener? Well, it's on all the internet, major internet uh, book uh, distributors like Book Depository and mm-hmm. Amazon. Uh, some bookshops have it. They will get it in for you if you ask. It's listed. It has an ISBN number. Mm-hmm. A lot of libraries have it. You can ask the library to get it in. But you've got an offer available. 
for yes, the listener. I, What's that? Uh, well, the first two people that listen to this program and like to comment on it on Facebook, they can do so, and I will send them a free copy of Distant Echoes. But they need to contact you to do that. Yes, and, and once they go to Facebook, they can find out my email address and email me their particulars, and mm. I will send them and a then, book. And talking about being a master of your own destiny, all the trials and tribulations you face, the book ends with a reference to uh, Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give away to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream, and so the poem goes... Um, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. So getting through the trials and tribulations of life. Class, thank you very much for coming in today. The book is Distant Echoes, the author, Class Kalmer, and it's a self-published book. Thank you, David. Thank Pleasure. you, Jane. Jan. Right, well, Class was talking about creating your own destiny, but what about if you're born into privilege? Aha. Fiona Lowe has written a big book, and I wondered if this book would keep my interest to the very end, but it did. Welcome to the program, Fiona. Thank you for having me. Um, your book, called Daughter of Mine, deals with one extended family. What makes Harriet so proud of her family? Well, Harriet's been raised in a tradition. She can date her family right back to the 1500s in England. And uh, when I created this family tree for, for my family, um, I just decided that that's what, what it would be. I'd done a lot of research and a lot of um, families had come across to Western Victoria from Van Diemen's land and from England with a mob of sheep. But I just plucked 1500 out of the air. And then about... Five months ago, which was well after this book was, you know, all lined up, ready to be published, I found myself standing in a house outside of Colac in their hall looking at a family tree that dated right back to England in the 1600s. Well, <laughs> I said, when you read the book, it's not you. <laughs> Harriet, she's followed in her father's footsteps. She's a surgeon and very um, well regarded. Her husband, James, is mayor of the town and her daughter, Charlotte, is head of rowing at a prestigious girls' school that she's boarding at. Now, Harriet has two sisters whose families' lives don't seem as perfect as hers. Tell us about Zara. Zara is the... Um, Harriet's the eldest of three daughters and Zara is the middle child. And middle, middle children generally are very different from the eldest, unless there's a big age gap. And so Zara was the rebel. Everything that Harriet mm. did, Harriet was going to be like her father. Harriet wanted the, all the... embraced all what the family believed about themselves. And Zara was a bit of a rebel. But then she did settle down and uh, she's married to a local sheep farmer. And anyone who has lived on the land will know that life is... Um, very tough at times and so um, they don't have the disposable income that Harriet and James have and they their first born a daughter 
um, has a severe disability. So, and Harriet can't even believe that her, that her sister went on and had another pregnancy and ended up with twins. That's right. Not only did she have, risk having another baby, she had twins, the temerity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Zara's life is chaotic. And um, there's a line in the book where Harriet arrives in her pencil-thin skirt and sit, goes to sit down and has to flick a, um, a pee off the chair from dinner. <laughs> there's always laundry to be folded. It's a very chaotic household, as most households are with numerous children. and um, But it is... Harriet can't cope with um, Zara's daughter, the fact she's got a disability. In fact, at the start of the book, the only thing that Harriet feels a little bit guilty about is that she's the only one of her three sisters to have a happy and healthy child. At least that's what she thinks. I I, I go ahead to blow that little theory up. And I love it that um, Zara's given up her law, um, given up practising law, and but she's become her daughter's lobbyist. You know, this is as, as as well as an advocate for other parents of children with disabilities in the district. So you know, she's she's doing good stuff. Oh, that's right. She's a, she's a, she is an advocate. But it is it's very very challenging to have um, a career in children at the best of times. And I think when you have a severely disabled child, um, it's it's even more. So challenging. we've got the doctor, the lawyer, and the third sister, the younger sister. Oh, she's she's. Not got such a very you know, high prestige job, does she? No, she. <laughs> Georgie is the baby of the family and um, there's 10 years between Harriet and Georgie and Georgie's not quite certain whether her parents had just completely run out of puff when she arrived, <laughs> had that, that they'd invested all their parenting energy in the older two. So um, Georgie's really brought herself up and as it says in the book, you know, she had thought about doing different things, but she, again, um, she did an arts degree, which absolutely horrified her father, mm, you know. Yeah. And There's she no did employment fine arts, arts, which was even worse. <laughs> and she's a primary school teacher. So very early on in the book, the, the mother of these three daughters is Edwina. Now, we, sh- we, we know she's widowed and... Harriet, the bossy one, the oldest one, decides to throw her a party. Does everybody think this is a good idea? Well, Harriet, Harriet's very much like her father. And um, Richard died 18 months ago and Richard always threw Edwina a big birthday party. That was his thing. So last year when he died, there was no party. And Harriet believes that mum, who has moments where she's, you know, a bit disconnected, um, needs to get back into circulation and so she's going to throw a party for the whole district. She's going to do the full catastrophe. It's going to be colour coordinated. It's going to be the best finger food. We've got French champagne. It is the party that everyone wants to be invited to. And they do. And because Harrod's house and this beautiful house, we might have a a drawing of it on the front of the... um, of the book, uh, it, it's made for entertaining, and the party goes ahead. But there's something at the party that actually surprises Harriet. What's that? Yes, Edwina, Edwina, who was you know she was married to Richard for many forty years, and she was the perfect hostess wife. She supported her husband's career. She did everything right, and uh, she turns up to her birthday party on the arm of another man. And it's not just any other man, 
it's a man that nobody knows. So we're in a small town, you know, say like Colac or Hamilton or, you know, and everyone knows everyone. So she turns up with someone that no one has ever met before. And Harriet's horrified, not because of that, but also because he's a little bit dusky. Mmm, dark and dusky. Well, something also happens with Harriet's uh, husband, James, at this party, and his reputation is sullied, shall we say. James has been up to a few tricks that she didn't know about. his brother-in-law, Steve, calls him... He is lower than pond scum. (laughs) You can't get much lower than that. So um, we have poor Harriet. Now, she's tainted by her husband. So how does the township treat her? Yeah, Harriet has a bit of a torrid time. Um, but people on pedestals often often do. Mm. Uh, it's a tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, you it's put absolutely in it. a tall poppy syndrome. In fact, that's referenced in the book because although Harriet deserves some of the things that happened to her, she certainly doesn't deserve what the town does to her. Um, and but small towns are wonderful places in many ways, but they're also everyone knows everything about everyone or at least they think they know everything about they do and And they don't this is the whole premise there's secrets there's so many secrets in this in the families and uh, and as the secrets start coming out oh we (laughs) constant surprise Surprise. constantly turn those pages to find out that's the plan (laughs) yeah so the town the town um turns their back on harriet and this is I mean, it's challenging for anyone, but Harriet's always been the popular girl. She was the Mm. popular girl at school. She was the popular girl in town. She and James have been the A-list couple. They're, I mean, they're the um, fish in a small pond. So they, everyone wanted to be invited to their functions. Mm. And uh, suddenly she is actually marooned. Marooned. And uh, everything she thought she knew, she didn't. You know, sort of she thought her mother was rather removed. But we come to learn that it's not quite. Yes, over the course of the book, Harriet Harriet, um, has to deal with a few home truths, not just about the family that appears to have a lot of skeletons in the cupboard, Turns out, Grandpa totally, or Great Grandpa totally fabricated the family history when he attempted to write it. Uh, but also uh, things about herself. I'm going to get you to read just a little bit from the book. This is right at the very end when you know Harriet always thought her mother was a little bit, you know, removed, handy, just not even up to it. And here, by the end of the book, the mother is forceful, and this is what she says. Edwina says to Harriet. All your life, you've aspired to be as successful and as perfect as the Mannerings who preceded you. Only they were riddled with flaws. They valued respectability and they feared the judgment of others over individual happiness. They used money and power to force family members to toe their hypocritical line. It's left a path of destruction in its wake and I want it to stop. And I want it to stop right now. now. And yes. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Um, the book, Daughter of Mine. There's so many daughters. Edwina's got three. Doug's got three. And a quote, Sisters may share the same mother and father, but appear to come from different families. I think that is very true. It's uh, I, We tried very hard to find the source of that, but it comes up as anonymous all the time. Uh, and I think family 
as like community. We're made up from a variety of different personalities, but we just assume because we're connected by blood that, um, you know, we'll all get along better than perhaps people out there in the community. Doesn't always happen that way. (laughs) And for those that don't have sisters, as one character says, I don't have any experience with sisters. I'm only used to having brothers. I think they're a lot less complicated. I used to bribe them with food. (laughs) I'm the mother of two sons. (laughs) I have two sons and we don't have a lot of these complicated uh, discussions. No. (laughs) And obviously not a lot of food in the house. (laughs) Oh, because that's eaten. (laughs) Well, Fiona Lowe, I, as you can tell, thoroughly enjoyed reading this this story, Daughter of Mine, and I, um, I, I so I found out about you because I haven't read anything about yours before. You've won the Rita Awards and you've run the uh, Ruby Awards. Now, that's in a category or genre of fiction that... Well, tell us about it. Well, um, this is a daughter of mine. Is my twenty eighth novel. Twenty eight. It's, uh, it's it's a departure. This is very much a general fiction novel. Prior to that, I was um, my other books are romance, straight romance fiction. I started off writing um, little category romances, medical romances, and then more single title. And um, I was had my eye on the American market, and I wrote a book called Boomerang Bride in two thousand and ten. Exactly when the um, global financial crisis hit and publishing around the world imploded and we lost publishing houses and we lost a massive amount of bookstores and the rise of the e-book and self-publishing started and I was trying to um, sell sell the book at that time. So I, it, it um, took 38 agent queries and, the, mm. and it got 12 print publishing house rejections in the States. And um, in the end, I said to my husband, this book's too good to sit on my computer. I said, I'll submit it to the new um, e-book um, of Harlequin America and they'll publish it because I don't want it to be an e-book. <laughs> <laughs> Got to understand this was 2010. Life's changed dramatically yes. since then. So I, I did and they published it and then they did the one thing that, that really helped me out as they printed half a dozen copies so it could be entered into the Romance Writers of America's Rita competition, which is literally the the Oscars mm. of romance fiction. And I was this bewildered Australian in Los Angeles and I went over for the party really and no and I went for the you know they were going to take me out for dinner and there were all this stuff for being a finalist and uh, never in a million years did I think it would win and it did and I still pinch myself for that uh, and what that did was then it opened it opened doors it was much easier to get agents it was most much easier after that you could just put Rita Award winning Mm -hmm. author in a subject line and instead of them deleting your email they actually opened it (laughs) so I had um I went on and had um four four five six books published in America but then I had an absolute hankering to write something that wasn't specifically romance and I really wanted to write something in set at home in Australia and even more than that in my own backyard and that's why I chose the Western District. Fiona Lowe finished her book with the acknowledgements, and this is quoting, A huge thank you to all my readers. I know the choice of books is large and your book buying budget not quite as big. I appreciate very much your choice in purchasing this book with your hard-earned money. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice gesture to make, and it's a big book. It's not quite the romance book, which is sort of curtailed 
220 no, pages. No, that's right. Well, romance fiction doesn't have to be um, um, 200 pages. It can be any <laughs> size. <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Uh, Fiona Lowe and her book, Daughter of Mine, published by Harlequin. And I interviewed Class Kalmer about distant echoes. And that does us in for another week.